0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, several nursing homes had outbreaks over the weekend here in the Hamilton area, and the city is bleeding millions of dollars due to the pandemic. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us to talk about that. Premier Doug Ford has called on Donald Trump for halting N95 mask exports to Canada. But at the same time, COVID-19 has united many political fronts. We'll talk about that political phenomena. And when all is said and done, just what impact is this pandemic going to have on the global economies? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. On a day, whatever it is now, of uh, our physical distancing, I've kind of lost track of it. A lot of people I talked to over the weekend couldn't remember what day it was. But uh, self-isolation can do that, I guess, when you're kind of staring at the same four walls a lot of the time. But it's what we're supposed to be doing. So... I, I'd, I'd rather have people complaining about being a little bit bored than complaining about how they're going to take their next breath. And that is an option at this stage. That's what COVID-19 is all about. And we've heard some rather troubling numbers, uh, certainly from the Prime Minister, uh, the Premier, and uh, the provincial uh, representatives, of course, late last week, uh, gave us uh, their projections about the uh, the mortality rate. And uh, it's, uh, it's frightening, really, to see those sorts of numbers. Uh, the good news on all of that, though, is that we could do something about that. Those are projections, but if everybody, and I mean everybody, were to follow the rules and, and obey the regulations and, and the standards that are being set here, that number's not going to be as big as they suggest it might be. And we all know what that means. That means washing our hands. That means, uh, means physical distancing. That means uh, isolation, if at all possible. Stay home as much as possible. And uh, from what I'm hearing, uh, it was a nice weekend around Hamilton, uh, Saturday and Sunday, and a lot of folks just thought, yeah, those rules don't apply to me. Uh, I don't know where we're going to get the, the compliance that we need to get here. But the numbers are still concerning here in the Hamilton area. Joining us to get a local update on what's happening is Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. as He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Mayor, good morning. Hope you are well.
1: Good morning. Very well, thank you. And it, it occurs to me that, uh, that people have real power now, real power to actually make a difference in terms of how this uh, coronavirus actually gets managed. So uh, they, it's in the hands of the people, and I'm... I have confidence that uh, the vast majority of them are doing the right thing, and uh, fortunately, uh, you know, a few of them are not, and uh, we'll, we'll do everything we can to put them uh, to remind them that this is not optional. This is this is a requirement at this point.
0: Well, and we heard some of the stories this past weekend about some people sneaking onto the golf course and playing and, and walking the waterfront trails. And uh, if anybody saw any of the videos of any of the newscasts, national or even local here uh I, I, you've got some of the stuff taped off and fenced off and people are hopping the fences they're just going under the tape and doing this i mean what what part of don't do this don't they understand
1: well exactly and uh you know and i understand the frustration so uh, we all have this uh this you know those feelings every once in a while like couldn't i just couldn't i just do this or couldn't i just do that uh couldn't i just go for a walk and uh, on the trail and you know maybe maybe call my friends and and get together and well, I, I feel so much better well that's true but uh, but you would feel lousy if uh, in the course of doing that you spread a virus from someone or someone gave it to you and now you end up uh, hospitalized and possibly life trip. so this is this is the way this virus operates it is uh, now becoming pretty well known that that everyone's at risk so yes you know seniors more so than others but uh, but it it seems to be taking the life of perfectly healthy people young people Middle-aged people, uh, everything in between, and so no one's immune from this thing. Uh, no one is uh, safe. Uh, uh, hopefully, and and so far, the majority of the people that are getting this uh, do recover, and that's good news. But far too many of them do not, and uh, so are we? Are we prepared to sacrifice three thousand to fifteen thousand people in the province of Ontario? Keep uh, you know, let's just go on business as usual and maybe even make it a hundred thousand. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. So a well, life is uh, far more important than that, and uh, people need to bear that in mind when they're out, you know, over trying to override what we're trying to prevent them from doing. Now, I, anecdotally, I, you know, I took a couple of bike rides throughout the city uh, yesterday, uh, safe distance from everything, and getting some exercise. And uh, you know, it was it was like Sunday. And Mondays like Sunday, and Tuesdays like Sunday. It is very quiet out there, and the vast majority of the people are doing the right thing. But if they, you know, if they fail to do the right thing, we're going to do our best to catch them, and uh, we're going to we're going to hand out some fines. Wednesday will approve uh, a five hundred thousand, uh, sorry, five hundred dollar fine for um, our, our municipal law enforcement that they can issue for anyone that isn't, uh, you know, socially separating or physically separating as they should. Uh, hopefully that will uh, that will remind people that uh, that uh, this is the right thing to do, and if they don't do it, uh, it's going to hit them in the pocketbook.
0: We're learning more and more about this uh, just about every day now. Of course, about uh, as, as some people uh, are exposed to it and recovered. And, and your point's well taken. Uh, you know, you may feel great and healthy and say, "Ah, you know, I, I don't have this, so I can go out there and I can hang out with my buddies over in the park or whatever it mm-hmm. is that they're doing." Uh, but you could be asymptomatic. You could be a carrier and and not even know that you're carrying the virus. We found out uh, initially. Remember the story was, well, pets are immune to this. Well, we find out now that they can carry the virus. They may they may not react to it, but they can carry it. So go pet your dog or somebody else's dog. You don't know that you're not putting the virus on your hands. So, which only underscores what you've been talking about since day one, Mr. Mayor, is that follow the rules here. wash your hands. Yeah. You know the, the 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 physical distancing. Those those are key, really.
1: Yeah, and you can't do it often enough, and it's not—it's not. It's not uh, we don't. We're we're asking you to do this occasionally. We're asking you to do it all the time, and uh, you know the, uh, the, the everyone has to assume that they are a carrier of this virus, and they could very well be, uh, even though you you are not feeling the symptoms of the uh, the issue. Uh, you could have picked it up somewhere along the way. Uh, it's not active on you, but can be activated to somebody else. And, uh, you know, in a lot of the nursing homes right now uh, that we're you know witnessing some of the tragic events that are happening, you know, a lot of them uh, are as a result of someone that came into the nursing home that had the virus. And you know, it goes from one to the next, and it spreads like wildfire when you're in close proximity, in like in retirement homes and long-term care facilities. So these things can happen quickly. They can happen innocently. You're not intending to infect people, uh, but you could very well be doing so uh, without even knowing about it. And, uh, and, and, you know, the guilt you're going to feel if uh, you somehow brought a virus into your home or, you know, where your grandparents live or where your children live or where your family lives because you've been out and about and weren't, weren't paying attention to what we've asked you to do. You bring that home and they, uh, they contract a, uh, this, this virus and uh, they end up being ill. Uh, that, that's on you. That's then your responsibility therein. it's your You're the cause. And, uh, do we, does anybody really want to be the cause of, of infecting any, any of their family members in any way, shape, or form? I don't think so. So, uh, folks get, uh, get with the program. Uh, it's tough. It's, uh, unusual. It's frustrating. Uh, but we need you to be patient, patient not only with, uh, with, you know, yourself in terms of giving yourself the opportunity to relax a little, uh, you know, enjoy the time that you have off to the, to the degree that you can. Um, help is on the way in terms of financing and resources and i know it can't come fast enough but it is coming uh so uh you know we should all we're, we're all going to get through this uh, but we're going to get through this better quicker faster if everybody adheres to the kind of physical separation and <coughs> no gatherings uh, larger than five now actually no gatherings at all if you can avoid it so that <laughs> we don't continue to spread this virus.
0: i mean this is not situation normal and as, as- You notice when you're going on your bike rides, I'm sure, yesterday, uh, you know, the closures, restaurants, bars, closed down right now. Uh, You know, Canadian Tire made that announcement over the weekend. Uh, uh, Grocery stores remain open, but there are limits and and quotas as to how many people can actually go in the store. So uh, I can't understand how people can see all of this going on around them and figure, yeah, but it doesn't apply to me. It certainly does apply to you. But you mentioned something a second ago, Mr. Mr. Mayor, I want to talk about something else that, that you uh, talked about at great length last week. And, of course, you're starting to get some of the economic impact numbers about what this is costing the city. And, and I know I know that lives are more important than the economy. The economy is, is in rough shape right now, but, you know, that's something we can deal with. I know the federal and provincial governments are trying to do something about this. Uh, and But as you said, when they start having those discussions, and they already have talking about funding programs and assistance programs, uh, there's got to be some discussion there about how this is impacting cities because I think the phrase you used was uh, that we're bleeding billions, if not millions of dollars uh, on a weekly basis now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, right now, uh, free transit uh, costs money to put forward. We're still employing, uh, you know, the uh, the drivers and the people that maintain the vehicles and uh, the folks that uh, that do the scheduling. And so all of that still is, in, is but we're not generating the revenue. Uh, all the programs that we've had uh, through Culture and Rec that uh, generally uh, generates revenue uh, you know, currently is now flat. Uh, a lot of the planning fees that, uh, you know, aren't happening currently, uh, you know, all that revenue has disappeared. So our revenue picture is, uh, is sinking and our expenses are increasing because we're expending money on all of the things that uh, we're having to do to shut things down. Uh, there, are, there are potentially more money, or not potentially there is more money going into the shelter system. There's more money going into the food banks, all all municipal dollars to try and help uh, all the agencies out there uh, manage this uh, this this corona coronavirus. So at some point, uh, and this has been a discussion we've had with the, the deputy prime minister, uh, the uh, just just the other day with uh, Minister McKenna, the Minister of Infrastructure and and Communities. Uh, they're, they're well aware of, of the, uh, the, the sinking revenue picture and the, the, the kind of dilemma that municipalities are going to be in. Because we're not allowed to run a deficit. We're all offering some tax deferral, which is going to cost uh, you know, cost some money to do. And we're all bleeding, uh, bleeding revenue and our expenses are going through the roof. So they know full well that municipalities are going to need some relief uh, to, uh, to kind of balance the books at the end of the year. And, uh, and they hear that message, and, and, and I think their answer is correct, that uh, right now uh, we're, in the, we're, we're in the middle of this crisis, and so we're going to do everything humanly possible to save lives. That's priority number one. Uh, secondarily, we're going we're gonna to put money into the economy, and I, you know, I suspect there's another $100 billion on the way for supports uh, in the economy for businesses and uh, the cultural sector, a lot of areas that uh, so far have been forgotten. Uh, but at the end of the day... Uh, there's also going to be a look at what do municipalities need to uh, to keep themselves whole or else we're looking at massive tax increases on the municipal side, which I think would be counter counterproductive to, uh, you know, stabilizing the economy. So uh, they're well aware of that. Uh, those discussions have been ongoing right from the very beginning and they continue. Uh, and I think they're putting it into into the right framework, which is we have our immediate crunch right now. Uh, we're not, we're not uh, you know, end of year yet in terms of our finances, so as long as we, we maintain some cash flow, we're going to be okay. We'll be able to pay all the police officers and all the firefighters and the paramedics, and, uh, and then uh, at some point there'll be a reckoning in terms of what uh, the cities need to keep home.
0: Uh, we've heard the stories and seen the videos of, of our, our heroes in, in this battle against this pandemic, of course, and those are the frontline uh, healthcare workers uh, that are doing incredible work, of course, each and every day at our healthcare facilities uh, here in the Hamilton area. But you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the first responders, police, fire, uh, and, and obviously paramedics as well. Is the city monitoring what's going on there, too, vis-a-vis the proper equipment for them to be using while they're out there? Because uh, they're not self-isolating. I mean, they have to be out there. They're, they're there to serve and protect, and they do it you know, in, in such a wonderful way. But at the same time, there's a concern about burnout. There's a concern about stress. There's a concern about, uh, about the impact this could have on them. Is, is there a program to keep an eye on exactly how this is affecting those people?
1: Yes, completely. Uh, you know, we're we're actually
0: inviting uh, Inspector
1: uh, or, or Deputy Chief Ryan Diodati to uh, come and join us at our press conference this afternoon to talk about, uh, you know, some of those issues in terms of policing. I mean, they're, uh, they're, they're, their policing is as effective as it's always been. They've also had people that are, that are off because of uh, social isolation. So some of them went on vacation to Florida and had, had to come back. Uh, so the impacts of of the virus are also being felt on the service but they're they're managing just fine uh, and they're using all the the appropriate protective equipment when they when they have the interactions in the in the broader community so they they need to be protected but you're right paramedics fire uh, uh, police uh, all of our frontline workers in the healthcare system are 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 you know basically heroes in, in terms of they're putting themselves at risk every day to maintain our city's functionality and to uh, to help protect lives. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, we need to give them a huge, huge shout-out for uh, their effort. Uh, some of them, some, some, you know, are, are, are a little bit more leery about doing this than others, but I think the vast majority of our first responders, frontline public health workers, folks in the grocery stores that uh, that are, you know, working every day with a shield in front of them, you know, they're exposed, and uh, but they're, they, they understand and appreciate that the city needs to keep going, and, and, and people need health care when they need health care, and the paramedics need to arrive and do their thing. But all of that done with the proper equipment, with all the proper protections in place, <laughs> it would be irrational for us to assume that we aren't going to find cases of it in, the, in all of those various first responders, and we, I think we see that already, especially in the nursing side or the doctor side. That's, that's already happening but uh the the best gear uh, and equipment possible and, and as you know uh we're all scrambling for that protective uh, personal protective equipment. So fortunately, uh we have a number of companies in the city of Hamilton uh, retooling their operations to provide or you know, a range of personal protective equipment, masks, uh shields, uh you know, some some um, sanitizers, uh gels, all, a lot of that's being uh, made locally here, but the, the, the sad reality is that uh, if we have that massive spike that we're hoping to, to forestall, then uh, you know, all of those things are going to be challenged, and uh, you know, some protective equipment will go to those that
0: need it most the story we're hearing from a lot of people and we're talking about Canadian and US representatives seem to be focusing on the fact that uh, the next 10 days to 14 days are going to be critical and, and 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 they say rather dark i mean they, they talk about a, a huge spike here is that what you're hearing at the local level as well
1: well, we we expect more. I think uh, I think we are on the local level, we don't have an exact number as to what the anticipation is. but we you know in in the space of a couple of weeks, we've gone from thirty cases to one hundred and fifty cases. Uh, you know, we're still at uh, you know a manageable three deaths, none none of them good, and condolences go out to the families that uh, have lost a family member or are struggling with the, with the virus right now. Uh, so, so far, we're, we're, we're flattening the curve is all about managing the system, managing to not overtop the, the healthcare system. And I know that not only are they anticipating uh, more cases, but they're also putting in contingency plans to be able to handle more cases as they come into the hospital. And not, not, not all cases need to go to the hospital. That's that's the good part. Uh, lots of folks can go home. Uh, self-isolate and and, and in a couple of weeks they'll uh, they'll be okay and I think we have had a number of cases that uh, have been uh, identified tested uh, they went home and they uh, and they came came out of it just fine and you know in in some parts they're they're the lucky ones that not only uh, got through the virus but also have built in some some antibodies in their own body to be able to withstand uh, the the virus should it uh, come around again. So, yes, we expect more cases. Uh, can I put a number on it for you? Unfortunately, I can't. I think the, the premier <clears throat> globally, you know, set out a number somewhere between 3,000 and 15,000 possible deaths in the province of Ontario. Uh, I expect we'll have our percentage of that. But uh, the more that people can isolate and stick with it, uh, uh, you know, it really is in the hands of the people on the front lines, which is every resident out there in our community. If you're, if you're doing what we're asking you to do, then uh, then we will curtail those numbers that, to the best degree possible and hopefully minimize the, the amount of deaths that occur as a well. result. So really, as I said earlier, the power is in the hands of the citizens right now. Uh, you, you can make or break this virus. Uh, we want to break it, and we want to make sure that we get through this, and we will. Uh, the question is, how much longer will it take? And uh, hopefully the patients are Pine City and all the people in it and all the information that we're sharing with people as to why this is so important seems to be resonating out there. And, that, you know, again, I say uh, the vast majority of the people I see in our community are doing exactly the right thing. I'm sure they all have challenges, whether it's financial challenges or family, family pressures or, uh, you know, it's just being cooped up at home and, uh, you know, dealing with that uh, frustration that I can't get out fully understand all of that but I, I i believe that still the vast majority of the people understand why they're doing it what their mission is what the and what our mission is which is to knock down this virus as quickly as we can so that we can get some get back to some sense of normality sooner rather than later
0: absolutely hamilton mayor fred eisenberger mr mayor will stay in touch through the course of the week thanks for this today always a pleasure bill thanks so much Take care, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. By the way, quick email from somebody who said, hey, how come the American ride his bike and if he can do that, why can't three guys go play golf? Uh, first of all, it's, it's about physical separation. And secondly, and maybe more importantly, uh, the golf courses, which were Oak, of course, is closed to the public. So when you're going on that golf course, when it's closed, you're trespassing. So right off the bat, that you're breaking a law it's an apples and oranges comparison i mean people that are trying to score points on this thing get with the game program okay and get with the program let's just all follow the same rules you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml what role do politicians play in situations like this i mean many of them are giving us daily updates uh as to what's going on uh, and um, i've heard good and bad about that from people uh, some suggesting that that's really not into their bailiwick, that's medical stuff, and they shouldn't be delving into that. But at times of crisis, and this certainly is a time of crisis, uh, we, the citizens, are looking for leadership from our elected leaders, not just our medical leaders. And uh, some are supplying that, some not so much, as a matter of fact. Uh, a lot of people talking very much now about uh, the way that Premier Doug Ford has handled his situation, uh, trying to be as, as uh, empathetic as he can. Uh, but at the same time, uh, when he got some bad news, as we all did the other day, when uh, Donald Trump decided that he wasn't going to allow 3M to uh, start giving a, a number of the, the, the masks that we had already purchased and that had been longstanding thing with the Canadian government, uh, the Premier reacted this way we're the two uh, largest trading partners anywhere in the world and and to just say all of a sudden uh you know it's like one of your family members okay see you later you go starve and and we'll we'll feast on the rest of the meal i am just so so disappointed uh right now we have a great relationship the us and all of a sudden they they pull these shenanigans unacceptable uh, it's supposed to be a sense of cooperation, but I guess uh, tempers can flare in circumstances like this. So what role do the politicians play and how well are they performing? I want to bring uh, Cheryl Collier into the, sh- the conversation. Cheryl is an associate professor in political science at the University of Windsor. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today.
2: Oh, I'm happy to be here, Bill. Thanks.
0: Well, because obviously as, as a, a political junkie, I'm always looking at the leadership and what's going on. And, and I guess historically, we can go all the way back to the days of FDR and his fireside chats uh, during World War II uh, to try to assuage the concerns and fears of the American people. So uh, with that as a template, there's an argument to, to be made that there is a place for politicians in this whole thing, isn't there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, leadership right across the board, it's really important that uh, citizens have a, a good sense that, that the leaders are well informed that they're uh, that they're on top of things that there's there's trust uh, that uh, that there's um, at least a common message of, uh, of where uh, you know they see uh, the future going um, and I think uh, it, you know this is something we're seeing all, all across uh, many different platforms uh and and many different uh areas across the world Uh, you know i'm thinking uh yesterday we had the queen uh giving a message i think that is a a really good uh you know example of of who we look to uh you know we don't we we rarely hear from the queen uh not that everybody was uh i'm sure uh, you know that thrilled to hear that message but uh, i think the fact that she felt she needed to do that that some people felt uh, a comfort in having, uh, her in her role as, as obviously, uh, a monarch and a head of state coming in and, and, uh, sewaging some fears and, and, uh, and trying to at least, uh, you know, put that, that, uh, that kind of stamp of, uh, of all of us are working and we're all in this together. I think that's, uh, that's a good example of, of, uh, of kind of the need for leadership during this time.
0: Uh, and by the way, I, I, I agree with you totally. I think that had a huge impact, especially on the folks in the UK. Uh, just, just the other day, I re-watched uh, The King's speech. We're rewatching a lot of stuff, of course, these days, uh, since we're yes. practicing social isolation. Uh, but but that was the essence of that movie, too. Of course, that was The King, of course, giving the speech to the British people about the beginning of World War II. Uh, and, and we count on our leaders to, to be able to set the tone for it. it's crises like this, don't we?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know there there are, there always will be people to say, well, you know, are they overstating or, oh, you know, do we really need to hear from this person at this time? But I think the majority of us um, uh, actually uh, expect that, and um, and it does. You know, the gravity of the situation, for some people, this is still, I think, a little bit surreal, um, and it's really important for the leaders to step up and set that tone and to do it consistently. So, uh, you know, you may not think the daily uh, press briefings are are, uh, are much watch TV or much listen radio, but for some people, really, really important, and I think uh, it's important to show that leaders are on top of things.
0: Uh, let's talk about the Ontario situation, uh, and, and, and maybe the thing that I think has surprised an awful lot of people uh, is is the way that the premier has has performed on a daily basis. As you said, uh, I think it would be an understatement to suggest that uh, that there has been some partisanship in the relationship between the prime minister and the premiers ever since uh, Doug Ford was elected, and of course J- Justin Trudeau was reelected. Uh, they butted heads on an awful lot of stuff, and you figured, okay, that's the nature of the beast. He's a conservative. He's a liberal. But I don't see that partisanship in in the relationship between uh, not just the the Ontario Premier, but I think pretty much all of the Premiers in the federal government as we go through this crisis.
2: Yeah, you know, I teach uh, federalism in my uh, Canadian politics class, and this is a classic uh, situation where uh, we tend to see centralization in our federal-provincial relationships right across the country. Um, usually we, we identify it as times of war, uh, but any type of uh, national emergency of any sort, you do tend to see more of a centralizing um, uh, pull uh, to our politics. And uh, and that's, that's uh, for institutional reasons. It's better for coordination. Um, and I think if you think about Canadians generally and their deference towards authority versus some other jurisdictions. And we can look to the U.S. as being a a different example here um, Mm. because they are also a federation. But in Canada, we do tend to pull together and you are seeing uh, partisanship really is being left to the side. And I think this is uh, a good thing. And this is one of the, the benefits, I think, to our system and the way in which our politics work in Canada versus in other federations.
0: And it's not as if somebody said, "Okay, this is the way it has to be." It just seemed to be the way we've morphed into this. Let's focus on this, and you know, because there've been some bitter divides, of course, uh, to do with carbon taxing and things of this nature, uh, equalisation payments, and on and on it goes, and and some some very acerbic and vitriolic, uh, you know, dialogue going back and forth. That seems to be absent over the last two or three weeks.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and I think really underneath all of that is the fact that we need to work together. Uh, you know, no province can go it alone here and say, okay, well, I'm going to be really critical of the federal government and I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. And, uh, you know, hopefully I can, uh, you know, uh, pull up enough uh, uh, PPE and all the things that we need here and, and, uh, in my province to actually uh, make this work. They, they can't. They, we need to have um, all levels of government working together. And I think that's been pretty clear. Uh, you know, if you're a premier here and you know that uh, the, uh, everything is uncertain, you, you want to have those lines of communication open and you want to make sure that the partisanship is, is kept to a minimum. Um, you know, the partisanship between the federal and provincial levels too, it works in some cases and sometimes it doesn't. And and good leaders figure out when to make it work and when not to. It's a little bit different if you are in, you know, say you're Andrew Scheer and you're in the House of Commons and you're trying to be critical of, of Trudeau. That is, you know, that partisanship line is a little bit more kind of firmly established and so you, you you, you don't want to give them too much credit, but I think when we're thinking about the provinces and the federal governments for this, in this case, in this scenario, there's nothing, you're not going to lose anything by working with the federal government. You're actually just going to gain it, and I think uh, Canadians understand that right across uh, the country.
0: Well, because we've seen the antithesis of that, I guess, on the other side of the border, haven't we, over the last little while, where the president is is battling with a number of governors, all of them Democratic. I guess that's just a coincidence, Uh, especially Andrew Cuomo, of course, in New York State. Uh, Basically, it's a back and forth, and uh, there's very much a partisan tone to just about everything those two say.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other thing that you have, uh, if I'll stick my neck over into the U.S. Uh, analysis a little bit with Trump, uh, you have, you know, obviously his personal kind of, uh, of, uh, take on things and, uh, the need he, he seems to have for, uh, you know, constant praise. Uh, and I think some Democratic governors have figured out that they, uh, they can work better with him if they can kind of ride that line a little bit and then be able to say nice things about him and not be as critical, uh, so that they do get the, uh, the attention that they need because of course, uh, you know, similarly the federal government in, in, uh, in the national government in the U.S have access to things that the states don't have as easy access to uh you know the stockpile of of uh of some of their uh emergency stores uh the ability to to actually negotiate with national governments and and uh some of the decision making as, as far as the uh, uh the defense protection act So they want to be able to have access to that, and at least they have to play a little bit of different politics—not just partisan politics, but also personal politics as well. Happily, we don't see that playing out here in Canada.
0: Yeah, feeding the the narcissistic beast, I guess that's. that's Yeah. But if if that's what it takes, I suppose there are going to be differences, though. And we saw one of those last week. We just played the example, of course, of of Trump's uh, edict uh, and his, his coming down hard on 3M. Uh, and the immediate reaction from an awful lot of people on this side of the border, of course, was, well, what are we going to do to retaliate? What's mm-hmm. going to happen here? We heard the same thing when the, uh, the the steel tariffs were set in place a while ago during the uh, the NAFTA negotiations. Uh, that seems to be the, the knee-jerk reaction by an awful lot of people, to say, you know, let's get back at them, uh, which is maybe not the best policy or the best strategy for the Canadian government, given the fact that uh, the, you know, the U.S. economy just dominates us in every way. Uh, The Prime Minister was was guarded in his his reaction to this, but there has been some response to this. How should the Canadian government respond, And, and, and did they do it appropriately in this situation?
2: It's, this one's a tricky one, and um, working with Trump, I think on a good day is tricky, um, but it, in this situation, it's it's particularly tricky. Uh, I think for Trudeau, he he, I think he took the lane he has to. I, I don't doubt that he was. If you heard him personally off the air, he probably was as mad as uh, as Ford was. Um, but he he doesn't. I don't think he has the same kind of lane to take that position um, because he has to continuously try to negotiate. This is somewhat like the NAFTA negotiations, if you think about how uh, thorny those were. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of backroom discussion going on at the same time that the, you know, obviously the Prime Minister has to take tack where he you know he says that he's quite disappointed um he reminds of things like uh, you know what we're very aware of here down in Windsor we have uh uh you know really essential healthcare workers daily putting themselves in danger going across the border to Detroit uh where the the cases uh, are out of control comparatively um and and you know we've already had cases being brought back from healthcare workers that are, they're actually working and, and, helping, uh, people in, in Michigan, uh, and bringing them back home to, uh, to Windsor Essex because they live on this side of the border. That, you know, that level of cooperation, we're not threatening to pull that back. We're just reminding people that, look, this is, you know, to say you're going it alone is, is a little bit, um, of a misnomer. That's not necessarily what's, what's happening here. Um, and so, of course, that, that's important for him to do. At the same time, he cannot, uh, he has to keep all of the avenues open for negotiation. And I think if I'm reading a little bit between some of the things Trump is saying, he's left a little bit of the door open for 3M to, to, to do some things with previously, uh, negotiated contracts. And, you know, it, it's quite a volatile, uh, volatile situation working with the U.S president um so i think trudeau did what he had to do um but i also think that ford did the right thing as well he's he's got a lane he might as well you know express what all of us in in the back of our heads were thinking um and uh be a little bit more critical he's not doing those uh, one-to-one negotiations though with uh, with the u.s government uh, he's really, and this is, again, that cooperation piece between the, per, the premiers and the federal government. Really, we've allowed the federal government to do those kinds of negotiations here. So it's uh, a little bit good cop, bad cop, I think.
0: Interesting, uh, the, the, the strategy that is employed. And, and and maybe we could look back to those NAFTA negotiations over the last couple of years now uh, as, as an indicator of this. Uh, Trump said some pretty outrageous things during that time as well. And the prime minister was very guarded, uh, I think, and measured in his response to that. Uh, but instead of being vocal about this and, and, and being upfront about this, uh, it was it was the negotiations between, I guess, Christy Freeland and Lighthizer and, and others. In other words, they went one level below that. In other words, ignore the bombast and let's deal with this, uh, because those people do have Trump's ear, and, and that seemed to be effective in that particular capacity. And as you say, there was already a bit of a walk back uh, by the, the the Trump administration the other day when they said, well, you know, existing contracts, maybe we can let those go. That's, that's a foot in the door, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I wouldn't be surprised. Now, I'm not saying I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a little bit of relaxing of that. You know, for Trump, too, this is this is his bread and butter. He's America first all the time. So in his press conferences, of course, he's going to go in that direction. Um, he uh, he's going to say he's going to protect his citizens. Similarly, that's obviously what, uh, you know, Trudeau has to try and do and what board has to try and do is to say that they're there to stand up for our citizens. Um, And if you've got a protectionist uh, president like we do have across the border, uh, I can't imagine any of the other past presidents saying anything similar, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, that's the, the kind of situation we're in right now. So you have to play a little bit more of this kind of complex kind of politics where you uh, you know, leave doors open and you allow for some of that diplomacy to happen at the kind of the lower level, where really decision-making is made, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that, you know, in the past. Whenever there are high-level meetings between world leaders uh, and you see them you know, signing a, a, some sort of an agreement, uh, that's done long before these guys even get on the plane to go over to wherever the, the, the ground meetings the meetings taking place, and we all know that now. Let me, mm-hmm. I, let me ask it, about ongoing senses of, of, of cooperation uh, I, I don't necessarily want to think that, you know, for instance, the premiers and the federal government are all, you know, forming a big circle and singing kumbaya, but there is a sense of cooperation that is happening here. Uh, this is kind of like the nice feeling everybody gets around Christmas time, but then about mid-January, we're at each other's necks again. Uh, how long is this going to last, as long as, as the pandemic lasts?
2: That's a good question, um, and it's, you know, I uh, happily, I can say I've not lived through something this of this magnitude, uh, and, and neither, you know, we probably have that in common. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's really hard to, to look to something else as an example, which is what we tend to do in, in my field anyways to try and kind of predict. It's really hard to predict this. I would expect, though, it, um, it won't take too long. For you know, uh, not cooler heads, but more partisan heads to prevail. Yeah. As as soon as as the public seems to be okay and relaxed and back to normal, I think we'll see some more normal politics uh, returning again. Uh, you know, the next time you see people talking about the environment and and some of the uh, the. Uh, you know, the, the kind of sacrifices, again, we have to make. I, I even think now you go to the grocery store and you bring your own bags and you can't use those anymore. So we've kind of thrown the environment a little bit off to the side because we need to deal with what's happening right now. Uh, I, I think once those things are back to normal, then, you know, we start talking carbon tax again that's a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, line in the sand for a lot of the partisan differences we see at least between some of the provinces, thinking Alberta, thinking obviously Ontario and the, the federal government. Uh, I, I have a feeling those are entrenched positions. I don't think this is going to change the way in which those governments are going to approach that down the road.
0: Well, the uh, the partisan attitude is still being kept alive and well, of course, on social media. I'm sure you've seen some of the tweets and, and submissions that have been put in on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter on that. So, I mean, it's it's there. You're right. I, I can see them tapping into that uh, at the earliest possible time. Uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Professor, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for your perspective on this. Stay healthy, and uh, hopefully we can talk too. again soon.
2: Yes, uh, you stay healthy as well. All your listeners stay healthy as well. And uh, And, yes, I'll look forward to it.
0: Thanks so much. Uh, professor Cheryl Collier, of course, political science professor at the University of Windsor. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. At some point, and and we're told, well, it could be three months, could be even longer, uh, there is going to be an end to this. There's a light at the end of the tunnel eventually, and, and we're going to put the pandemic behind us for the time being. But what kind of an impact is it going to have on our global economies and individual economies, for that matter. Is it going to be business as usual, or have we learned from this? And is there going to be more of a sense of cooperation? Uh, There are some interesting papers being done and research being done on this. One of them, of course, is at the Balsillie School of International Affairs at uh, Laurier University. And I read one of them this morning at great length and with great interest one of those things where there's so many points that I want to talk about here that, you know, immediately you get the, uh, the yellow marker out and said oh, i got to cut this. And we're so pleased to have one of the authors of that. Anne Fitzgerald is a director of the Balsillie School of International Affairs and a professor at Wilfrid Laurier University's Political Science Department. And she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Professor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could jump in with us today.
3: Well, good morning. It's my pleasure.
0: Very timely, because it's a question that we a lot of us have had in the last little while. You know, what's this going to look like? Have we learned? Are we going to learn from this? And uh, you painted an interesting picture and asked some uh, some very probing questions about exactly what kind of choices we're going to have to make uh, when we come out on the other side of this, about how our economy is going to look like and how the global economy is going to perform.
3: Yes, no. Uh, uh, well, there's implications for both at the moment, and they're, they're very much interrelated how national economies are going to behave moving forward and how the global economy is going to behave, especially when the largest economy in the global um, economic uh, world is um, not taking an internationalist position. um, And uh, uh, we need that leadership at the moment.
0: Well, and that's the debate that had been going on. Uh, maybe move to the back burner a little bit, but ever since the Trump administration uh, took office in Washington, uh, there was a move, I-, I would think, anyway, towards more globalization, and I think there are some some very, very evident benefits to that that were happening on an international basis. But when when the big dog in in that whole thing pulls out and becomes protectionist and isolationist, uh, are, are we si- simply going to pick up when when this is all said and done? Are we simply going to pick up that debate and and it's going to be business as usual as far as the U.S. is concerned?
3: Well, you mentioned the term globalization, and I think um, uh, you know, up until the beginning of last year, people were questioning um, the benefits and the fruits of globalization. We started seeing the rise of the populist movements across Europe, um, more inward-looking here in North America, particularly to the south of us. um, uh, Calls uh, that were criticizing the globalization uh, agenda based on the divisions that were being further created between the developed North and the developing South. So here we are uh, at a time when countries are really trying to prioritize their national self-sufficiency moving forward. So, you know, this is, this is going to go against global economic cooperation. Um, it is likely to push countries towards further protection and competitive devaluations. Um, And, you know, these were the very issues that exacerbated and prolonged the depression of the 1930s. So this is not good for global economic cooperation and collaboration, nor is a lack of U.S. leadership in that collaborative form.
0: Well, and for those, uh, the old cliche, I know that if uh, those that don't learn from history are bound to repeat it, but you're right, I mean, there is a model in place here that kind of indicates what road we could be going down and the implications of that. Uh, That is, of course, the Depression, and and what resulted at the end of that uh, was the rise of uh, of totalitarian governments in some places. It was us versus them, uh, blaming certain ethnic groups for the economic woes. Uh, Boy, if that sounds eerily familiar to what's happening right now, it's... (laughs) It is, uh, because we start to see evidence of that already, don't we?
3: Definitely. We've seen um, a rise of xenophobic behavior in different um, continents and subregions. We, I fear that in many countries, especially diverse uh, countries in the developing world, we will see um, that xenophobic behavior lead to ethnic conflict, particularly if some groups become affected by the spread of the, d- the pandemic more than others. Um, you know, about the, the, the pathways to further economic depression, I think, you know, it's not that sort of cataclysm that we were facing um, during the times of the Great Depression or the Black Plague or um, very dark periods like that. I think there is light at the end of this. Uh, especially for countries that really exercise national discipline moving forward and stay at home and see this one out and, you know, think about where we will be in 12 months from now if we all uh, buckle down and adhere to the guidance that's 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 um, so prolific out there. And I think that's another thing, you know, that, that same guidance and level of communication is not so prolific in other parts of the world. Um, and, and, You know, this is, this is going against, uh, the, the betterment of society. I mean, there, there is an opportunity here for Canada to, um, you know, a country that was seeing the impact of the, uh, Saudi Russia price wars over oil, the diminishing demand for, uh, oil uh, produced by provinces like Alberta to, uh, you know, the increased trend of, uh, climate issues. Uh, to, to use this as an opportunity and start thinking about a new economic strategy that not only addresses the need for different energy energy structures going forward, but also um, uh, pays attention to the high cost of uh, high ca- capital costs of new energy projects um, projects that would produce cleaner energy and also cleaner technology. Um, and the big relief package of, uh, approximately 107 billion that has just been issued. So there, 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 there are a few trends that are really bringing our leading economic thinkers together at the moment. And, you know, hopefully there will be an opportunity to reach some, um, desperately needed objectives, uh, hopefully in due course by mid-century. Um, but you know, with with these changes, we've got to be mindful of the social impact here in Canada as well. Um, uh, we will see uh, new forms of video conferencing, new ways of working, but we will also have to be mindful to the isolation that that um, puts many people uh, into. Uh, the impact of that isolation, the uh, the ease of transition and the ease of change that some individual and groups um, may experience versus other groups, and we need to prepare, be prepared to support that as well. So I think it's a good thing that Canada is paying attention to um, mental health, socio-mental health. Uh, I think any innovations that we apply to the economy have to also be a- applied to support that uh, uh, social area as
0: well. Can Canada play a role in this? I, as you point out in the paper, uh, you know, from an innovative and technological standpoint, uh, there have been some, some advances of course uh, by Canadians in this field, but we seem to have let, let a lot of that stuff flitter away and now we're buying some of the very technology that we developed from some of the other countries that have moved forward on that. Uh, where does that leave us in 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 the this evolution that that probably is going to occur?
3: You know, you're absolutely right. The uh, you know, I'm speaking to you this morning from uh, Kitchener Waterloo, in the very region that has produced, um, as well as other parts of Canada, some leading thinkers in the technology area, mm-hmm. uh, artificial intelligence, um, uh, automation, mobility. Um, we are starting to pay more attention to our intellectual property and intellectual property ownership and retention, but we've only started this by way of measures that were taking in, taken in 2019 with the publication of Canada's National Intellectual Property Strategy. So this is a welcome development, but we need to do more now because the past le- leakage of patents Um, from our publicly funded research to different foreign entities, such as big American companies, such as the Chinese government, really means that we need to navigate around these licenses instead of leveraging these licenses, building on top of them um, uh, as as we could have um, and, and could have used them as a different platform at the moment. But the past is the past, and I think the lesson learned here is that um, we, as Canada, do have potential to play a leadership role in uh, information technology and the development of new innovations, but we need to protect, uh, protect our research. We produce 80% graduates, university graduates in this country, highest in the world. Um, and so that trend towards producing leaders, I think, is not in question. But we need to have those incremental platforms to build on, and those platforms need to be protected.
0: Just to go back to, to the globalization versus protectionist uh, situation, as as we were moving a little more towards globalization, and that included things like international trade deals, of course, and uh, do and, and we try to co- talk about the benefits of shared information and shared economies in situations like that? There was a move afoot, and we all know, of course, about Brexit and and, and the talk about some of the other uh, trade deals that uh, people tried to get out of right now. Uh, And we've seen how that has had a negative impact on some of the countries that have been involved in that, including the sharing of information uh, and technology and, and frankly, of the workforce. Uh, Have we learned from that, or are we going to go right back to that debate again?
3: Well, it's interesting because in in my... um academic field, which is uh, skewed more to the security side, national security, you see the best sort of cooperation through information sharing and knowledge sharing um, through a sense of limited multilateralism and not widespread multilateralism. So um, with with like-minded countries coming together based on um, like-minded thinking, shared common values, and shared interests, and i i do think we will see a reversion back to that we'll see that happening um more around the world because of the benefits that have um come out of this uh, the management of this crisis uh you know we 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 saw information sharing uh at unprecedented levels worldwide we've seen governments like the chinese government Um, show its openness to cooperating with the World Health Organization, to supporting the European Union and EU countries. Um, So, you know, with all the the, the tragedy that this pandemic has evolved and, you know, the dark side of this pandemic, we have seen um, different pathways to greater cooperation in some areas. And I think we've also seen um, what withholding information uh, can do um, to to uh, catastrophic levels. So I think moving forward, um, we need to focus on that nationally and globally, nationally by way of supporting our intelligence functions, putting some resources behind um, the role of the national security advisors and national security offices. These are offices I've worked with um, in many parts of the world, And they are, in my view, the most under-resourced offices with minimal authority. Um, And yet, these are the offices that are mandated to bridge together the different forms of intelligence, triangulate, um, ask those black swan questions, and try to make countries more black swan robust going forward. So I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that going forward, one of the main lessons from this will not just be information sharing at the global and multilateral levels, but also nationally, how we uh, take the information from experts, experts that do this kind of thing on a daily basis, which uh, often isn't the role of public servants, um, experts that then have good functioning pathways to pass this information and knowledge into government, uh, at a speed, uh, which helps governments inform their policy making responsibilities and equally for governments to be able to reach back regularly to the expert community, um, uh, at any time of need.
0: I only got about a minute and a half left here, but I got a, a very important question. I, I agree totally with what you're saying here. But, but with, and, and I would think agencies like, well, well, or organizations like G7 and NATO, of course, are probably examples of what you're talking about, about that sense of cooperation. But how effective can they be going forward, again, when the big dog here, meaning the U.S., uh, is diminishing the role that they play and diminishing the effectiveness that they play playing by, by their criticism of agencies like that?
3: Well, I mean, you mentioned organizations like NATO, and uh, the first and foremost responsibility of the state is to protect its people, its borders, and its sovereignty. But we cannot do that outside of Canada. I would argue not no countries can unless we do this with partners. So this is where these organizations really um, are useful. Uh, so interesting at the NATO summit last year in London, uh, UK, we saw the American government um, standing standing back, um, accusing European partners of not stumping up. Um, uh, Emmanuel Macron also talked about NATO being um, outdated and fairly useless, and mm-hmm. this brought together um, Canada with its European partners, and and they found ways of navigating around the standoff uh, position that the U.S. were taking. So um, we have seen different flickers of hope that um, countries with like-minded interests and values can rally around and do everything possible to develop policy in an evolving way. But without the U.S. leadership, it will be difficult. And, you know, with the U.S. coming in and out, uh, depending on the time and the need, that is not helpful either. So I think, you know, Canada's sovereignty and security still depends very much on a very tight relationship with uh, the Americans. We need to continue working with the U.S. administration, um, not just for NATO purposes, but also for NORAD purposes, especially with the increased interest In the Arctic, Um, uh, Canada can take a leadership role, and it already has done, um, in the Arctic Council, uh, which brings together a number of Arctic and non-Arctic countries uh, with similar interests. So uh, we can also take a leadership role in the United Nations, um, which, again, has not benefited from uh, a booming U.S. voice in recent years, Mm -hmm. aside from the Security Council, but where Canada has... Um, done some great work on banning landmines, um, done some good work on protection of civilians, on responsibility to protect. So we can keep that voice going, especially if we get that seat on the Security Council, which I know is the aspiration of the Canadian government.
0: Professor, we're going to have to leave it there. A fascinating piece It's called In the Aftermath of COVID-19, Policy Implications for Canada. Uh, Thought-provoking. Thank you so much for the time today. I really do appreciate it.
3: My pleasure. Thanks so much.